So Steve Jobs, Johnny I and, and Apple reading the New Testament with leading edge designers. Uh, I probably would have done these seminars in reverse order and start first by talking about how the modern world is profoundly Christian. Uh, but this is the way things have happened, which is fine. But I've said this many times. I'll just say it one more time. Even the most radical atheist now in the 20th century, if you put them back or 21st century, put them back in the first century, people would think they were Christian. And I, I teach in China. I might have mentioned that to you um, every summer. And we're there because they're convinced the Bible is the engine of modernity. And when we, at the end of the conversation, we point out, okay, here's the Ming Dynasty. And here's the world of the Bible in terms of its understanding of reality. What does modern China look most like? And they're usually stunned. It's far more Christian than Ming. Right? Now, it's, it's that space that the Bible opened up. And I've talked about change a couple of times, right? The creation's not perfect. It's good. The space that's opened up in terms of change is the design space. If the world is not perfect, that means it is free to change. And it's in that space of changefulness that human beings get actually to design things. So I've been talking about the making a lot in the last few sessions. We get to make. That's what humans do. And one of the reasons I think we've, we've lost that, I know I'm repeating myself, is that we've turned theology into description. And that's an important role. But those are not the people that have run companies. If you want to be a creative, dynamic company, you don't want the describers running the country, you, your company. You want the people who have ideas. Now, you need your accountants to make sure some of that stuff's going to work. You really do need them. I'm not denigrating them anyway. But you don't want your companies run by accountants because that's just not the grammar they live in. That's not their giftedness. You need people who can come up with new ideas, can see things in new ways. And that really is the gift of the gospel. Its worldview is what created that space. So I want to look at some of that today. Are we all okay? Oh, I'm too loud, am I? No, I'm going to turn you up. Just oh, really? Stop the oh, okay. Gee, I love that. I'm actually being turned up. That's amazing. <laughs> I'm in shock. <laughs> Thank you, Michael. You're a great guy. An unsung hero. Well, um, that isn't me, and I can show you if I take my shirt off, but you probably won't thank me, so I won't. But I trained as an aeronautical engineer. There it is. But I also studied art history, and as part of that, I did a course in philosophy. And what I learned in, as I studied those things was that each one of them has their own grammar. You learn a lot about designing aircraft. It's not going to help you understand Chagall or Matisse. And then, you know, the philosophers, um, they're really good at doing this abstract truth thing. But they can't tell me what it's like to look at a Matisse painting. They can't ever describe that. And sometimes what happens is I think, well, if we can't describe it, it doesn't exist. And I did go through a crisis at university where I had to make a decision about... Flies are open. Oh, thank you. Is that right? Oh, beg your pardon. There you go. <laughs> you want to see it? It's right up there. Thank you. Thank you very much. I should keep my... Was that open in the morning session as well? Oh, my goodness. All the videos are going to be trimmed. It's because I'm getting old. There you go. Right. Um, thank you for that. Very helpful. <laughs> it's funny we get embarrassed about this, isn't it? Right? But, um, it happens. So what I learned was there are different grammars for about talking, uh, talking about different kinds of reality, and they don't necessarily transfer from one to the other. Okay? Now, what's that got to do with us? Well, I was going to talk about this crisis before I should go back to that, but I had to make a choice when I was doing philosophy and doing art history 
whether I was going to believe the, those philosophers, not all of them, but those philosophers who said, if we can't describe this rationally, it's not real, and end up saying, I don't believe you. When I look at a Chagall, I'm stunned, and I will not deny that experience just because you tell me, well, if I can't describe it properly, it's not real. So I kind of made that decision to prioritise my experience over what I thought was necessarily rational. Okay? It's already a decision that's at work there. Now, what's this got to do with the Bible and theology? Well, you can probably tell from the images that I'm after something here. And I've been touching on, touching on it a little bit in our talks. Remember I mentioned when I studied theology first off, we started with what? Doctrine of God? Right? But the Bible doesn't start there. It starts with an experience of creation. And I want to say that's not a neutral decision, actually. Because where you start, where I start, is going to determine very much what I can see and what I think matters. Okay? So I learned this from doing sociology. When you stand on a mountain, you can see every other mountain except the one you're standing on. And that doesn't undermine the view that I'm having, but it is a way of telling me that already my perspective has been shaped by where I've started. And it was partly thinking that through that made me say, well, hang on a minute. Um, why don't I just kind of man up and let God tell me how to think about the world? So I'm actually going to start with creation. I'm not going to start with the doctrine of God. If he didn't start there, why should I start there? Because what I'm really doing is saying, well, that's very nice, but I know better. The best way to talk about you is to start with the doctrine of God. Whoever told us that? Did God get it wrong the first time, but thank God we've come along to straighten him out? No, 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 no. Right? These are two very different ways of knowing. And they do look different. Now, please hear me. I'm not against theology. But you know the difference between reading Samuel and then reading a systematics textbook, don't you? Right? You know the difference. I'm not necessarily saying one is wrong and one is right, but there is a difference and that difference is not neutral. It really has some things to say about what we think is the best way to know God. Now, coming out of that is some work on uh, right brain, left brain thinking by a chap called Ian McGilchrist. Anyone read this book, The Master and His Emissary? No? Familiar with this? Okay, it's a wonderful book. Um, it's It kind of rumbles along because he's trying to find a grammar to talk about this. But he discovers some things, for example. Um, so even though our, our skulls are symmetrical, our brains aren't. They're actually kind of twisted. And he thinks, why has that happened? Is that just an accident? I mean, if, if it just needs to be symmetrical, why isn't it symmetrical? Why is it, I think it's called the Yaklovian twist or something. So as people have learned about how the brain operates, they've discovered some things about this. Right? So one of them, for example, is if you freeze the right side of the brain okay, and you show somebody their left hand, they'll push it away saying, it's not my hand. Right? The left brain won't recognise it. And that, that's just a, a recognised phenomenon. Or if you get somebody to draw a cube, they're really good at drawing all the straight lines, but they don't connect them. You just get a whole series of... Right? But they're not integrated. Now, freeze the left brain and let the right brain draw a cube, and none of the lines are actually straight, but they're connected. So there's something going on between the right brain and left brain in connecting things, right? So the usual idea that, you know, the right brain's about, um, you know, it's the feminine side of things, the left brain's about... No, 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 that's just not true. That's why people have stopped talking about the whole right brain, left brain thing in many circles. But what seems to be going on is this. You know, little Tweety Bird, animals have this right brain, left brain division too. 
So little Tweety Bird, and the wonderful illustration of this on the video that I'll tell you about later on. Um, in order to survive, it's really important that Tweety Bird can tell the difference between a pebble and a grain of wheat. Get that wrong and you're in trouble. So it seems what the left brain does is it's really good at focusing on that stuff and it deliberately excludes anything else that's going to get in the road of that focus. Because right? it has to get that right. So this little Tweety Bird, right, okay, I've got to get right. Now, the problem is it's so focused on that, here comes Reynard the fox, right, and Tweety Bird doesn't see it because it's so busy excluding everything else but what it's focusing on, that's the end of Tweety Bird anyway. So what happens, it appears, is that the right brain is like a wide-angle camera lens that doesn't make judgment. It just sees all of this stuff, and it's looking for anything that doesn't fit. Right? Now, that's what you can see up here in this um, picture. Right? So uh, this is kind of the right brain, this is the left brain. And the left brain is the stuff that's fixed, static, isolated. Right? It wants clarity, it wants precision, but it often does that at the cost of the thing being lifeless. Now, just stop and think about that. I mean, I'm in uh, the Society of Biblical Literature, been part of the Mark group for many years. There is a real difference between reading Mark as a gospel and then reading a theology of Mark. One of them's more precise, but it's also the one that's more lifeless. It's static, it's accurate, but it doesn't tend to inspire very much. So this is what people have um, discovered here, apparently, is that the left brain, like a narrow, you know, very closely focused, and it needs to be that. Right? Brings precision, it brings clarity. On the other hand, the right brain is much more, it's broader, and it sees things, but it doesn't make a judgment about them. So what this means then is, you unpack this in a little more detail, and I'll read these for you. The left brain, narrow focus, abstraction, it has to decontextualize. When you're trying to work out what's the seed and what's the, you know, the, the stone, you don't need to be worrying about the weather. That's the last thing you want to be thinking about. This is why people have accidents on the road. They've got their cell phone up. No, 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 you're driving, stay focused. Let the left brain do its thing, okay? It's about fixity. It's about static isolation because that's what brings clarity and that's what Hellenistic philosophy looks like. That's what it's trying to do. It's wanting the truth and the only way to get at that from its point of view is to have it fixed and abstract, right? Clarity, precision, all of that. But the problem is, this perfection comes at the risk of being lifeless. Now, when I was reading, I was thinking, isn't that interesting? Genesis, creation is not perfect, it's good. That's just a really interesting, right? Unlike the rest of the ancient world that said, no, creation had to be perfect, the Bible says, no, it's good, and that's actually the gift. On the other hand, you have the right brain, it's richly textured, deeply personal, culturally embedded narratives, they yield a world of the individual, the personal. It's characterized by the implicit. There's room for change, growth, interconnection. It's fundamentally about incarnation and living beings in a lived world. Now, this is from a guy who's not a Christian. He's describing how the right and left brain operate. Now, let me ask you, which theology or scripture looks more like which? I can see why one's attractive because it brings you precision, but the real risk is it ends up denaturing life of all its diversity and its ambiguity right? because it wants precision and accuracy. So Einstein made this comment. 
The intuitive mind is a sacred gift, and the rational mind is a faithful servant. Now, I don't want to say, you know, I really do care about being thoughtful. I really do care about that. I'm not diminishing that in any way. I just will not let that be the master. There's other stuff that goes on that I can't put into words. Someone was asking, how will I know if I receive the power of the Holy Spirit? That's not a matter of abstract rationality. That's relational. Mum, how will I know if she's the one? You'll know. Right? Well, Mum was right, but don't ask me to explain how I knew. I knew, right? There's a knowing that goes beyond that ability to rationally articulate, and that's this intuitive side of the mind. And that's where I think the design stuff comes from, and I think that's what Scripture looks like. What if scripture is more right brain oriented than it is left brain? Now, that doesn't mean to say that scripture doesn't say some things that are true. It does, but they're within a much larger context of history and culture and persons. So one of the things that comes out of this, I think, the more we talk about God in abstract terms, guess how we're going to treat people? So we'll talk about the truth in ways that are incredibly ungodly. They won't be loving. They won't be compassionate. They won't be personal. I've got the truth and I'll just steamroll right over the top of you in that process. And we end up, because the way we know actually says something about the character of the God we know. Okay? So I want to suggest that what this turns on then is a real distinction between Jerusalem and Athens. And one of the key things, again, I'm going to skip this section. In fact, the slides have already gone. I'll talk about this on Friday. But the key idea here is change. I think that's absolutely fundamental. For Jerusalem, change is the gift. For Athens, it's the enemy. Why is it the enemy? Because if you're looking for the truth, what do you know about the truth? The truth can't change, right? Two plus two must always equal four. Can't be anything else. Right? So if you want the truth, it can't change. And the Greeks also said, right, and if it changes, if something changes, it's not only not true, it's not real. That's why they don't look to history for finding truth. They do philosophy because philosophy is outside the changeful world. Looked at the world lately? Looked at yourself lately? Everything in this creation is about change. So if you buy the idea that the, you know, the truth is timeless and changeless in that sense, you're not going to go looking at creation. And I think that's why Hellenistic culture was just incredibly static. You've seen one statue, you've seen them all. Right? You've seen one Greek city, you've seen them all. And that's driven by you're going for the one perfect form. And there's no room for variation in that. Now, some of you might be thinking just behind all this, well, hang on a minute, does that mean Christian truth is all up in the air? No, because the thing in the biblical narrative that doesn't change is God's character. So there is something that doesn't change, but it's the character of Yahweh. Now, how that character is going to be expressed will vary depending on who it is that God's relating to. You know that. You're a parent. right? You're going to behave differently towards your five-year-old than you might towards your 25-year-old. Though sometimes you wonder about that, wouldn't you? Okay? But that doesn't mean you've changed. It just means that you recognize what you're engaging with is different. And so a different part of you is called forth in each of those situations. And I think that's where Israel's confidence is. Its confidence doesn't lie in its ability to reason this stuff through. That if it can just kind of get all the logic sorted, it's got what's unchanging. No, 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 because it's not an it that, that doesn't change. It's Yahweh's character. See how that's right brain, left brain again? Right? Yahweh is much more about I am who I am. I am the individual Yahweh. I'm not like those other gods. You've got to take that seriously. 
So change, then, I would argue, is the incredible gift of the gospel, and that's the design space. No one in the ancient world talked about innovation. No one talked about creativity because it wasn't about that. It was all about conforming to the one perfect norm. That's all it was. You never went any further than that. It's not until Europe gets rid of Plato and Aristotle that you see the explosion of art that you see in the Louvre, for example. And it's the same thing with modern science. You have to get rid of those guys before we get modern science. right? So there's Hellenism. It all looks like that. But in our world, you can see I like Chagall. All this wonderful variation just unleashes human creativity. So for them, the Greek world, uh, they think everything's controlled by the Logos. And the Logos can't change if it's true. So then they're wrestling with the problem of, well, how do I explain change in the world? It's all just appearance. Right? It's all just the same thing going round and round and round. And this is Chrysippus's view. Right? I don't know if you can read that, but I'll read it to you. The restoration of the universe takes place not once, but over and over again to all eternity without end. Those of the gods who are not subject to destruction, having observed the course of one period, know from this everything that's going to happen in all subsequent periods. There will never be any new thing other than that which has been before, but everything is repeated down to the minutest detail. That's where Hellenistic philosophy takes you. That's why their culture goes nowhere. That's why its hierarchies are fixed and there's no change. But that's not us. Behold, I make all things new and it's characterized by hope and joy. That's the Christian worldview. So that's kind of the theological preliminary. Now I want to leap into some of the design stuff if I can. I want you to watch this and listen to the language. Apologies to all the... Uh, PC users, I just don't, don't mean to have a shot at your Windows program. But I just wonder if you notice that language, right? The first question I ask is, how do we feel? Now, you think about that. I grew up in a tradition where actually feelings played a, a large part of what it meant to be Christian. Then I studied theology and was told, no, 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 you never based your theology on your experience. Well, okay, that makes sense. Then I read the Bible and thought, where did you get that from? Their whole theology is based on their experience of Yahweh, right? Pay attention. Look, see, right? And, and look at Jesus. What attracts people to Jesus? The fact that he heals them. There's this feeling element to it, right? This deeply embodied nature of this, which strikes me as right brain, that somehow we've lost. And I think it's because our theology has become too Hellenistic. Right? And, you know, can I be so provocative to say the more Hellenistic our theology, the less able we are to deal with change. And not only that, the more inhuman we will become because we actually end up looking less and less like Yahweh. So how do you feel? Joy, delight. No Greco-Roman Stoic ever talked about joy as something that mattered. No one spoke about delight. That's the thing that comes out in Philippians, though, right? The, 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 just the pervasiveness of joy in Christ. It's totally foreign to the ancient world that people should live like this. You know, all meant to be Stoic, right? And you've met, sorry, Presbyterians like that, haven't you? Sure you have, right? Which is actually more like Stoicism than looking like Jesus, right? Just kind of dip off a lip and... Did you hear that from the Brits? I hope not. Um, anyway. So a couple of things then about design thinking, right? If we are in this space where, where things can be transformed and we can change them, a couple of things to keep in mind, or four of them to think about, first of all. Design thinking is a mindset. It's not a system. It's a mindset and not a system. Now, if I look at the scripture, that's what scripture's building in people, a way of thinking. It's not building a system. 
I have a friend right now who's working in Japan with one of their major telecom companies. They have to go through major transformation. He's trying to teach them how to think design, and the Japanese keep looking for a system. And he says, you don't get it. This is not a system. It's a mindset. It's a different kind of thing. And their culture just isn't ready for it. And I think it's because their culture is not being touched by the gospel. We don't realize how much the mindset of Scripture has shaped the Western world and opened us for this kind of thinking. You've got to have a deep narrative. You've got to have character. We'll talk about how those relate. You've got to have controlling metaphors. So I'll just unpack this as we go through. First of all, the mindset. Well, there it is in Jesus. Let this mind be in you. That was also in Christ, right? Even though he had equality, he did not grasp after that, but became a servant. Now, all the people I know who work in design thinking tell you when you're working with a company, you actually have to incarnate yourself in their world and not be in control. You really have to come at this as a servant. You don't get to set the parameters in one sense. You have to accept the world that they're a part of, submit yourself into that, and then serve in that context. That's what my friend does in his design consultancy, has to embed himself in their world first and then help guide them through that. But there's a mindset. It's not about control. It's about service. It's about bringing life to people. And you saw that language in Apple, right? What we want to do, we want that to enhance other people's lives. Now, can I just ask you, what do you think holiness is? Do you think holiness is a private little thing about being good in myself? Or is holiness actually how much do I enhance the lives of others around me? I think the second one's more biblical. Holiness is the degree to which I enhance the lives of people around me. The only one who knows how to do that is God. And we see this in Jesus. He models this for us. Deep narratives. Vision statements are death. Because companies are living organisms. They have a history. They have a DNA. You need to know that. People need to know their histories. They need to know where they've come from. They need to know who I am. I think companies do too. You want to get rid of those vision statements. You need to know your history, where you've come from, and what it is out of that that's shaping the way you bring life to people. That's what deep narratives do. Now, the critical thing, the link here between deep narratives and character is narratives are what form character in us, actually. We'll talk about, I've already mentioned this, that character informs every design choice. So what's important about deep narratives? Well, narratives have to be deep enough for you to put your roots into. They have to be something that you can actually get immersed in because it's in being immersed in that story that it shapes who you are. That's why creation, fall, redemption will never change anything. It's tissue paper thin. There's no depth to that. There's no personal development. There's no engagement in cultural narratives. It has none of that going on. It's this very thin little thing up there. It's like wet toilet paper. Put your finger right through it, right? But what deep narratives do is they engage you. People like Martha Nussbaum recognize this. So our history comes to us in all these kind of scattered moments that just hit us, right? There's the whole range of things, and we create our narratives out of that. There are thousands of things that happen to you every moment, and you and I are choosing all the time which ones we will allow to determine who we are. Now, sometimes those are forced on us by people from the outside, by our families, by our society, right? The point is, narratives do not come to us fully formed out of the blue. They're what human beings create. Human cultures create those narratives. Why do Australians get so upset about ball tampering? Because we're defined by whether or not we win or lose at cricket. 
Those guys tampering with the ball, like I said the other day, that's like catching the Pope out doing something really bad. And you should see the self-righteousness that comes out of Australians when, boy, the way we went after those guys. There's a bunch of convicts, right? They're getting all self-righteous about ball tampering. Come on, come on, come on. Look at your own background. Where did you come from, right? So, um, because that's our narrative. We're trying to prove to everyone that actually the British government made a terrible mistake in shipping us out there. We actually matter. That's why Anzac, you know, Anzac soldiers had the highest rate of casualties in the war was because they're trying to prove to people we actually matter. Right? Those narratives really do shape us. Now, the problem is all of our narratives are broken in some way or other. Rather, you know, arrogant, trying to prove we're special, we're insecure with this or we're that. So when we talk about the biblical narrative, what's actually happening when God invites us into that story is profound. Because that narrative actually is telling us who we really are. You are not the stupid kid who couldn't answer the question in grade three. You're being changed by these narratives, but they've got to be deep that you get into. And that's what the Bible's so great at doing. And look at the depth of Samuel. It's a stunning story. Early parts of Genesis, the Gospels, they're stories, not just for the sake of being story, but that's what actually shapes us as human beings. Now, designers will tell you that's what you design out of. It's who you are and who you are is formed by your narrative. Right? So that's where the character bit comes from. We've been looking at that in Exodus. We're learning about Yahweh's character from this narrative. And as we enter that narrative, his character is formed in us because every design choice is formed by my character. If I'm insecure and some young woman comes along to my church who's gifted, how am I going to react to that? Right? I'm the great pastor, and I've experienced this. I remember when I first went back to Australia years ago, I was the guy with a Cambridge PhD, and all the students were signing up on my door, and I was humbly serving Jesus. Wasn't it great, right? And, and a couple of years later, another guy turned up who was really amazing, and I suddenly noticed the list of sign-ups on my door began to shrink. Right? And then the Lord really had to talk to me about that. Who's this about, Rick? You or the kingdom? And I just realized how much my identity being found in other things, right? Well, I can't help people make good design choices if my underlying narrative is, I need to be praised and glorified. I need to be the great one. I could never admit to making a mistake. Try and live in a company like that. It will kill you. Try living in a church like that. That's why the grammar of good and evil is not Christian grammar. Because that trades in guilt and shame and legalism. That's not the grammar we live in. We live in the grammar of life. We've seen what Yahweh's character is like. I'm not like any other God you've seen. And we've seen that the last couple of days. You think I'm like those gods. Whack me and see what happens. So when someone disagrees with me, I don't immediately get all riled up because it's my ego that's at stake here. You can't be a designer and be like that. God, I'll let that stuff go because it's not about me in the first place. Right? How do I bring life to others? How do they feel after having been with me? Do they have a sense of life, a sense of joy? And then big controlling metaphors. Designers will tell you that you need those. And I think scripture gives them to us. Creation is God's temple and every human being is made in God's image. And we talked about that uh, in 2013. So when you go to the restaurant and that person comes to serve you, they're not your server. They're first and foremost made in God's image. Right? That young person behind the cash register is not just there to fulfill my every wish. They're made in God's image. And that's the fundamental grammar of how I relate to them. Right? That's what we're meant to be like. 
So these big things, mindset, deep narratives, character, controlling metaphors, these are all powerful things that design thinkers tell us really matter and they're already there in Scripture. Are we surprised? No, because it's Scripture that opened up the design space for the first time in human history. Now, it doesn't mean that humans weren't creative and couldn't come up with stuff, but they didn't think design and innovation like we do. That's primarily a gospel contribution. So creation is God's temple. Humanity is made in his image. What is done to the image is done to him. Those kinds of powerful things shaping your choices. Uh, so I want to see issue. The Bible is, in fact, a design handbook. It's not there to give us control in the sense of having all the I's crossed, all the T's dotted, have a wonderful, nice, tight system. It's not a left brain book. It's a right brain book. It's got some true stuff in it, absolutely. Creation is God's temple, absolutely. That's the truth you can build your life on it. But it's in a larger context of engaging with people because humans are makers. We're going to make cities whether we're in relationship with God or not. That was the point of Cain, the Cain reference this morning. He's a murderer and he still builds a city. His children, animal husbandry, musical instruments, metallurgy. Right? Humans will do this. We will create. That's who we are. The only question is will we do it in ways that reflect God's character? So can you hear that? Try to think about theology as design thinking rather than a nice, tight system that never changes. Because we live in a world where change is a genuine possibility and we get a chance to do that. Right. So, a couple of things I learned from Apple that might help. And, uh, you know, I have some friends that work at Apple and, and Steve Jobs does have a bit of a checkered legacy, right? No, he's not always liked by a lot of people. But a couple of things are really helpful. Um, the first thing that happened, I and mean, you know, Apple has, I think, already become the world's first trillion-dollar company. It's astonishing when you think 17 years ago they were almost broke. How did that happen? One of the first things they did was put designers in charge and not engineers. And I think that's part of our problem, folks. Our theological training is more about engineering than it is about designing. It's more about description than it is about ideas that are informed by these big narratives and then you put those people in charge of churches and by the way I'm speaking about myself here I'm fundamentally to blame because I'm part of that system so if you're a pastor I'm not really talking about you I'm talking about the bad job I've done informing people to actually help communities be involved in designing new communities that bring life to people right. so the folks you want are the ideas people People who are secure enough in who God is to have ideas are the ones who everything has to be neatly controlled and tight. You don't want that, it seems to me. There's a wonderful story about the knife where uh, Steve Jobs and Johnny Ive are in Paris, apparently. They walk into this um, amazing knife shop. And, of course, one of their things is, it sounds a bit odd to say now, that they wanted to make good design available to everyday people, which is why your iPhone now costs, what, £1,000 or something? What happened there? Okay. Um, at least it's not 10000 I guess. But that, that was their philosophy, right, to make sure that common folk could actually get good design because good design enriches people's lives. I mean, you, you look at the houses we put people in. Horrible little square boxes, no imagination about them, and then we wonder why their lives look like they do. But what if governments, what if, if local councils are thinking, actually, we're building houses for people made in God's image and every one of them is made in God's image. What should that house look like that brings life to them and nourishes and sustains? 
And I don't see a lot of that going on in a lot of the design in parts of the modern world. So they go into this place and they, they pick up this knife and it looks absolutely fantastic. They turn it over and right where the handle fits this beautiful blade is a little blob of glue. And they put it down in disgust. Why? Because lack of integrity. You've got this amazing knife, but you didn't care enough to make sure that you put it together properly. Now, that can become a legalism, but it can also become part of a mindset. If it's worth doing, we want to do it in ways that really do bring life to people. Let's not be careless about it. There's another story where um, you know, Steve Jobs is, is renowned for his volcanic temper. and I'm, I'm certainly not saying you should model this. But uh, one day he just went off at this guy in front of everyone and Johnny Ive had had enough and he went into Steve's office and he said, you know, this has got to stop. Right? You've got to stop this. You can't treat people this way. And Steve Jobs said to Johnny, um, you don't actually care about those people. You just want to be liked. Why should I be vague? Now, on the one hand, right, I'm not saying no room for filters. But on the other hand, uh, he's got something to say there. How much of what we do is about us being liked instead of about actually what's going to bring life to people? And I find this, I'm in a Christian organisation at the moment as I'm thinking about, you know, it's fundamental problem is we can't tell the truth to one another. It's because our egos and identities are tied up in all kinds of other things that we can't actually hear the truth from one another without taking it deeply personally. We have to get past that, it seems to me. Caring. People said that's what really drove Steve Jobs. He cared that people got products that actually went well and worked well. And I want to say that about our life as Christians too. Right? This, as you're a designer, you need to care. We're almost done. Uh, one of the things that somebody said about Steve Jobs was how quickly he could change his mind. So he'd come in and he'd kind of blow his top about something and, and then the person would kind of say, well, actually, it's meant to do this. And he'd say, oh, oh, that's brilliant. Great, let's go. Okay. And, but I think that ability to change your mind is absolutely critical because we can get stuck into these ways of being who we are and when someone comes up with something that's different, that actually works, we're so invested in our own identity, in our own position, that we just can't change, even though it's a great idea. But it seems to me that being a good designer requires that. Well, I'm going to skip through the 10 rules, but I want to pick up on two key ideas just to finish here. Um, when Steve Jobs was younger, he was working with a guy called Mark McCoolin. Mark McCoolin, I think his name was. We're almost done. And... Uh, I started talking, Mark said to me, no, Steve, people do impute. What do you mean by that? People make judgments on the surface of things, right? They make these flash judgments about who you are. They meet you and they, begin to, they have to make a decision. It's part of human history, I think. You need to make a decision about will this person hurt me or not. So you make these snap judgments very quickly and it's just part of being human. You can't avoid it. And it's really difficult to change those first impressions. Really, really difficult. So you ever went to work for Apple? They take you through their campus. They take you through an induction. And part of that induction includes telling you the story about how they designed the little white buttons that hold together the clear plastic around their products. You ever had an Apple product? And by the way, who, who actually keeps... Anyone got an Apple product? Who keeps their packaging? How many people keep their wheat bix boxes? Why do you keep your packaging? Because of imputing. Right? 
They know that first impressions really count. That's why on videos you can see people having unboxing ceremonies where they've got their new computer and everyone comes to their place and over, you know, something to drink and some snacks. They go through the process of opening the box. Now you think, why would you do that? Apple gets this because people impute. Those first impressions are crucial. And that's Genesis. You don't meet Yahweh in Genesis, you meet his creation. Apple knows this. That's why they think carefully about their Apple stores. The first time people walk in your church, they're imputing. The first time they meet, you or me, they're making snap decisions about who we are. And we have about five minutes to get that right. Because blow that and you're done. It's going to take an awful lot of time to get around that. Okay? So the question I'd say to Christians is, what do we impute? We're designers. We can change the world. What do people get from us within the first few minutes of talking to us? That's going to have a huge impact then on how they respond to the gospel and all the rest. So critical question. What do people impute? Now, to answer that question, you really have to know something about who you are. And Johnny Ives talks about essences. And uh, what he means is this. So, by the way, you know that little plastic thing with the button? They'll tell you in that week they had 40 different buttons and had furious arguments about what they should look like. And you think, oh, they're just being anal. And they'd say, that's because you don't care enough. It really does matter, and you really need to think it through. That's the caring bit. So nothing got Steve Jobs more upset than people who didn't care enough about their work because that's a lack of care about people. Might be worth thinking about that, right? Not thinking carefully about the church actually translates into not actually caring for people because you're going to be imputing. Now, essence. Um, what, what Johnny Ibe means by this is... In design, it's not just simplification. The German expression is weniger aber besser. Pardon my German accent, but it means less but better. Good design is not just simplification. To know your product, Johnny, I would say, you have to know the thing from top to bottom. You've got to know it all the way through. And he's good at that. He knows material science. He knows design. He knows all that kind of stuff. Right? Because it's only when you really know what you're involved in, you can decide what actually is irrelevant and what's central to what you do. And if we thought about that as being Christian, what really is critical to being Christian? What stands at the heart of this? What's essential? What's not essential? Right? Wesley said something like that, right? But what are those non-essentials? What are we really on about as Christians? What should people impute from their first encounter? And what should be the essence of who we are? What should be the thing that really holds this all together? I think we can learn to think like this from designers. Okay. Well, I should probably leave that there and uh, let you ask a few questions. Is that right, Barry? I think we're kind of 45 minutes. Is that right? And I, I, yeah, so the question was, people do think differently. Some people like kind of more ambiguous, free stuff, creative people. Then you've got folks who want strict guidelines and all the rest of it, okay? And, and that's actually true. That's the way we are, right? Now, how does that work in Christianity? Well, one of the things about being in business is you can't lie to yourself for too long. Because every 12 months, there comes the bottom line. Now, academics can tell themselves fibs forever because we're government-financed and we're never really accountable for whether this stuff works or not. You can't do that in business. Right? You're constantly being impacted by the world around you. 
uh, which is one of the ways, one of the reasons I think, by the way, that for us, business is going to be the venue for evangelism in the future. Because these guys have to deal with the real world that the Bible speaks about. Now, in that business world, uh, there's a company called Accenture. I am I'm answering your question, actually. Uh, have you heard of Accenture, one of the world's largest consultancies? They know that the tree they're in at the moment won't be there in 10 years' time. They're looking ahead and they know their business has to change or they won't have one. So they're currently in the process of moving, I think, 700,000 employees into the realm of intellectual or IT intellectual property. They're moving across. And the guy they asked to help them do that is a friend of mine from Sydney who runs this design consultancy. And he's having to try, trying to get them to think in ways that will enable them to make that shift. Right? And the thing is, you can't have the box thinkers do that. They just don't know how to do it, right? It's a wonderful gift. Right? You don't want your banker thinking too freely about stuff, right? And that's a really important gift. But that's not the gift that brings newness and innovation. So I think it is having to say to people, yeah, we appreciate your gift. We appreciate how you see this stuff. But actually, when it comes to who we are, no, you don't get to determine this. Right? But that's how I think. Yeah, that's great, but you're not Yahweh. And he's the one we're imitating. So it's a fairly direct way of saying it, but I'd be saying, no, I'd look at the, the way the scriptures work. I'd like to see people who can think in that way. The prophets write in poetry. Right? That's a huge part of this creative way of thinking. I'd be looking for folks who can think like that. Now, you know, with Apple, you've got to have engineers who know how to put this stuff together. You've got to have people who know the limits of, right? So they have a role, but I just wouldn't put them in charge of the ideas section. Because the folks who live in these boxes are always telling you why you can't do stuff. Oh, that's impossible. Oh, we've never done it that way. Right, well, you know, that's got a role to play, but it shouldn't be driving the ship, I don't think, personally. Okay, so the question was, yeah, um, initially it sounded like I was saying everyone's a designer, but business literature says that's not the case. Some people are visionary, some people are not. And actually they're both true. Uh, because every one of us does something in our bedroom. Every one of us engages with other people and we choose how we're going to react. And because we're in a world that changes, we actually design through that engagement. Even the accountants actually have a design impact in one sense because they're changing the world by what they do or they're not changing it by what they do. So I think in that sense, because of the nature of the world, every one of us is actually a designer. We get to make choices that change the world around us. But within that context, some of us are more gifted to do that than others. And I think in the business literature, that's what they're after. You want the people who are more gifted right, to be doing that kind of thing, to lead you in those kinds of ideas. Now, you know, they need a team to work with them and all of that, and, you know, that's part of the process as well. So I think it's a both end, if that's not a cop-out. You know, at one level, we all are. Let me see if I can do you justice. So I think you began with the, um, an analogy with graffiti. So you see graffiti everywhere, especially if you're travelling on a train. Uh, you've got people doing it, the law says you shouldn't. So how do you hold those two things together in the sense of, now that we're Christians, how do we hold together freedom and constraint and law? And maybe is law the only way to really deal with the freedom? And I think the biblical answer to that is actually we live by the law of love. So it's different from the Ten Commandments. Those things were pointing out some things that Israel had to abide by. But it seems to me that what Paul's talking about is over against a system, there's a mindset. 
So if you like, in one sense, the Ten Commandments are giving expression to a mindset, but don't confuse that with the mindset. So the rabbis try to come up with a Talmud that covers every single instance. It's impossible. You can't do it. Right? There are too many instances. So what do you do with that? Because you can't write enough laws to cover all of that. Well, um, I think the Puritans are right. The laws are for the ungodly. Godly people don't need laws. Because there's something in the New Testament that I think is about a transformative mindset. And if you're constantly thinking about what does it mean to bring life to people, your life is not governed by the laws. You kind of need the laws when you don't have the spirit. And I think that's Paul's argument. In Galatians, it's entirely that. Israel needed the Torah to keep them until the spirit came. Now the spirit's come. To go back to Torah is actually to abandon Jesus. He's that strong on it. So I think it's, again, moving more toward that mindset that's informed by this deep narrative, these big metaphors, shape our way of thinking. It's not a system. It's a kind of person that we are. So you can pop us in any situation and we're able to kind of think about it and then be asking what's going to bring life here rather than what rules can I apply to make sure things work. Can you see that? It's a priority, I think. So I don't only churches that encourage creativity. Yes, I do, lots of them. Um, but I don't think that's design thinking per se. Right? Uh, creativity can often be, I just do my thing and that's how I... But design thinking is more to do with the things we've spoken about, like the mindset I'm here to serve. Uh, out of that you know, deeper narrative, how do I bring life to people? What does that look like? Uh, I don't know that I've seen churches that do that yet. I don't know a single theological training college in the world that actually comes at this through design thinking. I'd like to see what that looks like. Um, but no, I can't give you an example just yet. There might be some, I just don't know them. That's my ignorance. Not that, yeah. Did you end up? Yep. Yes. Sorry, no, this, this lady here had her hand up first. Sorry. Oh, okay. Got a few. I'll try and keep my answers short again. Yep. Yeah. It's a great. What about people who struggle with um, mental health questions? People who struggle with perfectionism, those kinds of things. I mean, that's a huge, huge question. Thank you. But at least in terms of perfectionism, for example, um, I think, okay, why is it only in the West that you find militant atheism? And I think it's because we had a picture of a God who offered this extraordinary possibility, but we didn't really understand grace. Right? So you've got to have room to invite people into great things, but at the same time show grace when they don't make it. And if that grace gets lost... Right? then the only thing you can do is kill that God because you can't live with him because you know you can't live up to those standards. Now, why does the standards thing get pushed? Because it gives control to the people who preach those standards. right? And that's not design thinking. That's control. That's a form of Pharaoh doing his thing. So I think what the gospel offers is, is what we saw this morning. right? You think I'm like those gods of Egypt? Whack me and see what happens. Right? That's a very different context to be designing in. Or, yep, I know you've totally blown it. A little story that might help. A friend of mine was involved in consultancy, actually um, not consultancy, but uh, mediation. And I can't mention any names because it's under legal whatever. Um, this company is extremely well known around the world. And they once had an ad program that just made headlines everywhere. Absolutely stunning. Uh, really made their name and all the rest. And, you know, multi-billion dollar companies. And then... Uh, they were working with their advertising agency. They got to do a second one. It was a complete disaster. And it created all kinds of tensions. And they were getting together for a week to try and resolve this. And my friend was actually mediating. 
they'd had four days and had gone nowhere and it was just going to go thermonuclear, you know, to the courts and it was going to be a disaster. So my friend was talking to the representative of the major company. The guy was saying, I just don't know what to do. And my friend said, you know, you can always forgive them. <laughs> what? He said, yeah, forgive them. What do you mean? Well, it's going to enable you to start again and you won't have to go through all this damaging stuff, right? You've So they talked about it apparently the wee hours of the morning. So I'm learning some Irish here, wee hours of the morning. Okay. And uh, eventually the guy said, look, I'm just not a good public speaker. I can't do this. And my friend said, you have to do it because you represent the company. Whether you do this ploddingly, stiltingly, it doesn't matter, but you need to do it. So Friday morning... You know, the, the parties gather and they just think this is serious, serious trouble. And uh, the guy representing the company that had been damaged by this said to them, well, listen, you know, we had this relationship and um, you know, we'll be honest about it. We think you betrayed us and we're really unhappy with what you did and um, just you've really destroyed our trust and da-da-da. But I forgive you and we want to start again. And my friend said it was just the most extraordinary thing. I, he, I was in Toronto. he just flown home that night. He was just beaming as he spoke about what happened. And it just the room was stunned. I <laughs> just absolutely stunned. And then all this talking started up. And the guy next to my friend said to him, I've never been to church, but I think this is what church is like. Right? Okay. Now, I don't think you understand the power of forgiveness. It's the most powerful thing there is because it, it just it can kill the past in one sense and set you free for the, free for the future. Right? That's what forgiveness, that's how it responds to the demand for perfectionism. Be perfect as I am perfect, but no, I'm the God of mercy and compassion. So there's this, yep, this impetus to want to do as well, as well as you can. But you know what? Even if you sin, it doesn't matter in one sense. That's Paul's argument in Galatians. What, 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 what? How can that be? Because Jesus already dealt with that. Well, what's going to stop naughtiness? You don't get it. These people are not trying to find excuses for naughtiness. They want to look like Jesus. That's what they're trying to do. That's what the Spirit's doing. All I'm telling them is if you fall off, it doesn't matter. Jesus is taking care of that, right? Now, I think there's a way to bring that into thinking through strategies for design and you know, calling the best out of people, but at the same time realizing we're sometimes going to blow it. It's okay. Confess, own up. It's one of the first things Apple would say. If you've done something wrong or the thing's not working, tell us now. We want to know the truth sooner rather than later. So, you know, I think there's profound tools in the gospel for doing this, actually.